0: I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my Thoughts on Money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. I am Trevor Cummings, your host of the podcast and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. And because of such popular demand last week, round of applause, back for another session, Mr. Drew Dill. Hello, hello. Hey, welcome back. Hey, such big demand. Such big deal. Did demand. your email blow up? My, yeah, I mean, yeah, I couldn't, it couldn't contain itself. Yep. Um, we're going to talk about an article I wrote today called Weighing Your Options. Uh, are you familiar with Enneagram?
1: Uh, I was after I read your article.
0: Oh, okay. But before that, you were not. I,
1: I thought it had something to do with. No, I
0: wasn't asking you. <laughs> I knew you were going to go there. <laughs> No, there was nothing physical, no flushing, anything going on here. Uh, It's uh, one of those personality exams. And um, the way it works, and we've done it here at the Bonzo Group, uh, it categorizes uh, people into one of these nine personality traits. I happen to fit into this one called the reformer, the perfectionist. Um, And honestly, a lot of these I've done in the past. I didn't get a lot out of it. But this one I've, I've read, I've gone a little deeper, and I was like, Yeah, this is me. I get described some of my issues.
1: How is the? I feel like the reformer and the perfectionist are like antithetical, right? Like a reformer in my mind is somebody who realizes it's going to be, you know trade-offs in the world of trade-offs and not solutions the perfectionist lives in the world of solutions no
0: well no i guess you can help me because wouldn't uh, in with the description uh, for the reformer something's broken and they're trying to reform it or fix it or bring it back into goodness or whatever so yeah i i I don't know i mean those are the terms that they use anyway not not a huge part of uh i
1: didn't mean to rabbit hole us no
0: i mean i you went, You were ready to go theological right now. I'm not going to do it. And you're not going to do, do it. I'm not going to do it. But my, my point there was um, we all are different. And uh, I do have this issue, this issue I struggle with, that uh, when things aren't perfect, it frustrates me. Um, and I like things that you can calculate. And one of the things for me as an advisor that I've had to mature through is that – Intuitively, you might think financial planning is all about maximization and optimization, but once you do the trade, you know it's not. Right. You know that there's these other qualitative
1: factors that you have to account for. Almost more qualitative than it is anything else, and you are a perfectionist, and so you live in the world of certainty. And I totally, when I was reading it, I was like, oh, yeah, this is – but what's funny to the listeners, they should know this about Trevor, is that's what drives him to know so much you're trying to be perfect, and that's why the breadth of knowledge that he has in this industry is quite fascinating and remarkable. So,
0: Well, I appreciate the com- uh, compliment. I, I think it, it, it that maturity part, though, becomes difficult. And, and one of the places I wanted to go with the article um, is that often for somebody like me, the way that I frame things, that it's black and white, or right or wrong, or left or right, uh, that you know, you're know you going to come up to some fork in the road, and you're going to choose one of the two directions to go. That is not how great financial planning works. And one of the things we talked about in this article is great financial planning, you put a ton of options on the table. And you then start to weigh those options, not only a, through the lens of optimization, but also how do they match somebody's objectives, somebody's preferences, personality, kind of this, this large filtering system that you have to go through, which makes it a lot more difficult than just making it into a simple math equation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I'm going to be moving as you know, to Oregon and something like that. There's a financial aspect.
0: Wait, does your brother know yet? No, <laughs> I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs>
1: He's going to know today. Um, I, my Everybody else does. That's the irony. And I just haven't told them yet, um, but I'm going to tell them today. I digress. But going to Oregon, right? There's a financial play there. Cost of living is lower than California, as you can imagine. Taxes are actually a little bit more on the whole. I didn't realize that uh, with my AGI. But there's a there's a qualitative. It's a full qualitative assessment. Quality of life, cost of living. So there's a little bit of math there. But a lot of it's like subjective. Who's there? Um, what community was there, you know, what churches are there, what private schools are there, blah, blah, blah. You, and you can, from there, it's, it's a, such a subjective qualitative and important thing. And when we're doing plans, this is, we do the math and the probability part, but a lot of this is just kind of fleshing it out with clients as to, do you do this or do you do this? Here are both options or here's a fourth option or a fifth option. I know that we're going to go to, um, that's really helpful in the planning, but it's also frustrating because it's qualitative.
0: And you're introspective. So you understand that there are multiple reasons why you're moving. But I know as a planner, sometimes like I might have a conversation with somebody doing the same thing. Like, okay, they're moving to Oregon and the cost of living this that and the other. And then two conversations, three conversations, four conversations. Oh, your in-laws live there. Mm -hmm. Oh, like you really like being outside or you like having space or these things. Like you start to understand even sometimes the reason they tell you might not even be the the primary driving force why somebody does something. That's a great point. Like I've talked about it a lot in the past. I can give you surface answers on why I became a financial planner, but if I really dig deep, I saw a lot of people in my family struggle financially. And it was my way to try to avoid that for myself because I know the pain, the anguish, the ripple effects and all those things that happened. So there's a lot of reasons why I might tell you, uh, you know, if I first meet you, why I was inspired to become an advisor. But the real reasons, uh, you'd have to dig a little bit deeper.
1: Yeah, more existential, rooted in experiences. Yep.
0: A hundred percent. So what I wanted to do in this article because I'm a big like case study or practical application type person, is I wanted to take scenarios where I've seen people make a financial planning decision into something binary, this or that. And I want to show them that there are more options and your ability to weigh those options typically can help you to craft, I shouldn't use the word better, but in my view, a better financial plan. So one of the first things I mentioned is retirement. I feel like um, when you first open that conversation, it's a real question of when. And people just kind of are asking themselves, do I want to retire now or later? And, and what I've found is that when somebody asks that question, like let's say you ask that question, and then I give you the answer that you financially could retire today, but then you don't retire. So the reason was different than uh, affordability or the things like that. And that's why I think it's important to pull on that thread. So retirement doesn't have to look like a finish line. Um, It could look like, uh, you know, I have a dear friend uh, from church, and she's been full time at a church for a long time. And she's going to scale down to less hours and less hours over an extended period of time uh, until she steps into quote, unquote, full retirement. Now, we appreciate that because it helps the organization acclimate but it also, for her, it, I think it builds some level of security because she starts to get an idea of kind of dipping her toe in the water of, of uh, socially, the type of things that she'll do and the impacts it'll also have on her financially.
1: Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. And with that, whenever you get to know somebody, it could be two, three, five, or 10 different ways they can skin the cat, right? To put it crassly, um, on, on any one of these questions that we're going to bring up. And it's hard. It's hard. It's the hardest part, I think.
0: Yeah. And that's why, I mean, I was going to name this article that uh, financial planning is non-binary, but uh, (laughs) I think it would have been too controversial of a term with uh, the world we live in. So, but it is the point that I was trying to make is that uh, if you box yourselves into a fork in the road, you're going to realize that there the other options that you're not considering sometimes can paralyze you from making a decision because if somebody says, you know, I'm not going to retire until I can afford it and then they can afford it, then they feel pressured to retire. But then they're like, I actually get a lot of joy out of this, uh, purpose. Uh, and then you can have a different conversation. Uh, can you extract those things? And, uh, will you be doing the same thing or a different, like, how can you, again, I hate to use this word maximize, but how can you then maximize the things that are most important to you and kind of prune out the things that are stressful? Uh, because since it's not a financial goal anymore, um, uh, you can maybe kind of winnow that down to not have some of those stresses that are uh, not welcome.
1: Yeah. So typically you would say, and I would say, I think in our experiences we're working with clients that, um, are gonna have highly successful retirement plans, right? Mm -hmm. On the average, most of our plans are really successful, not because of us, but because, right, clients have done a really good job accumulating wealth for so long. And they're in this accumulation phase from, let's just call it 18 to 55 for John Doe. And they come to you and I, and I'm just, this is a question, but I'm gonna frame it as a story, right? So I'm gonna want your response here. But in my experience, they come to us and they say, and they're nervous. Like, is my plan successful? Is it going to be successful? Am I going to be okay? And when can I retire? And usually, what happens is you not only say it's it's not going to be successful; it's going to be very successful, probability wise. And you can retire earlier than you thought, and you can spend more money than you thought. And they're so used, and we're so scared, right? And, or, b- prudent, scared mix of emotions, right, as they're accumulating, right, in their twenties, and their thirties, and their forties, and they set them up for such success, and. The math part of it is super easy. You run the numbers, right? You put the the inputs and the outputs of the clients, blah, 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 balance sheet. But where it gets really hard is when you tell them, like you said, right? You can retire earlier. You have enough money. You need to actually spend more money, right? If like according to your goals. And then they just have this like, well, what do I do? And then so it takes knowing the client and laying out, well, we've talked about this. You talked about this posterity, charity, whatever it looks like. Um, and that's, that's why when I think of this and I read this, this is a qualitative dance and it's harder because an advisor is doing their job. They have to know the actual client, the math thing's easy for the advisor, but like knowing the person, what they want to do with their finances, right? How they want their finances to be distributed from, you know, the grave putting it crassly all huge picture and all very qualitative and very difficult and can be sometimes frustrating for the client and the advisor in the sense of, there are so many options here. There's not one thing that we're going to decide on today. Um, this is going to evolve over a long period of time, and we're going to have conversations about you know the same thing over and over again, how you want to allocate. Does that make sense? It does when
0: you as an advisor are basically telling somebody there is enough, like there's easily enough, there's more than enough, and you still see some hesitation. Like shell shock? Yeah. yeah. How do you react as an advisor and, and kind of what is your next
1: line of questioning? Well, a lot of it is, you know, you've worked hard for this, right? So like this, this, this only came from your hard labor and your hard work. And the reason that you're shell shocked is because you've probably been so nervous and so prudent for so long, you're in this stream of thought that like you can't get out of, like you've trained yourself for three years, right? Like I have to follow this particular budget. We've done things this particular way. And largely that's why you're successful is because you had that mindset and then the next line of questioning is saying, well, now with that, like sit back and like just, let's just riff on that. What are, what are your goals? Like you talked about your church. They had a building project they you know, you've talked about this, you've talked about going there. These are things that you can now do and they do have hesitancy and you're just having to continue to peel the onion more and more. Like, where's this hesitancy coming from? And, and uh, you know, cause the math is there, the objective math is there. Um, but there's always still hesitancy like, Dude, is this really true? <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's been an odd term that I've found myself using a lot lately. Uh, clients ask a lot about the a, a new client. Uh, kind of walk me through what is the, the onboarding process and the phases of becoming a new client. And, you know, open accounts and consolidation, phase one. Phase two, work together and collaborate in the design of a portfolio. Phase three, we work with our investment committee to go then figure out the best way to implement that portfolio. But then phase four... For, for me and kind of the, the way that I frame it for clients is to kind of start building this project checklist and how do we improve incrementally your financial hygiene on everything from property and casualty insurance to your estate plan to your tax strategies to your charitable planning and everything in between. This odd term I use at that point is the reason I kind of and, and I stole it from David Bonson, so I shouldn't say I came up with it, um, but that I'm, I'm big on using this project checklist is because, and here's that term, I think I have a healthy paranoia that uh, I do go to bed at night like worried that perhaps I could lose a client because I didn't add the type of value that I want to add to them. And I think the clients you interact with, again, odd terms to put together, but they've they've grown up with a healthy paranoia that has led them in to be frugal, to be savers, um, to kind of, uh, you know, to not be the sluggard. And uh, again, odd term to use, but I feel like it's a lot of clients we interact with. And I listen to a lot of financial podcasts and read a lot about this uh, idea, which I I believe this might be hyperbole, but I I believe that there could be truth to this term that there is this, Kind of retirement epidemic in the United States because people haven't saved enough. The problem is I don't interact with a lot of those people because in, in, in my job I, I that's right I, I don't I, I it was I don't know how to how to articulate it perfectly but there has been this um, self filtering mechanism for the folks that you and I have gotten to serve yeah. that uh, a lot of them have more than enough. So, which is different. Some advisory practices, they really focus on a Monte Carlo analysis and helping somebody craft that budget and tighten the belt. That is not a lot of the conversations uh, that we're having. So, again, we kind of get a little bit of a different paradigm because of the exposures we get here at the Bonson Group.
1: Yeah, no doubt.
0: So that gives an idea of how retirement could look different for everybody. Uh, I wanted to move on, and, and both you and I, because uh, we've talked about it, have had experiences like this, but we will come across clients with high concentration, and that could be in uh, a private business they own. Uh, it could be in a the stock they inherited. Uh, it could be that you know, 15 years ago, they bought the best performing stock, uh, and their basis is a lot smaller than the value. When they come to us, again, slightly paralyzed because they're like, I don't want to pay all these taxes or uh, you know, this business is my baby and I, I, I don't know an exit strategy. But then us as financial planners, rule number one, diversification, right? We see this concentration, which poses a risk. But they're, sometimes they're like, whoa, 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 Drew, bef- before we talk about this, you no, know I'm not willing to sell this. And then you're like, wait, wait. wait. That's not the only option. It isn't this fork in the road. It isn't keep or sell. Uh, You and I have gone through different tax strategies where we exchange uh, that individual position for a diversified portfolio without triggering a tax. Um, We've helped clients with uh, ESOP plans where the the owner gets a liquidity event and then – is able to make, uh, you know, folks that they've, a lot of them worked a lot of years alongside them as actual owners of that business. So again, financial planning, we made that same mistake. We walked into this potential issue of concentration and we said, no, 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 no. Like, I I don't want to sell this because of all these reasons. And then we didn't realize, hey, Drew has worked with a lot of folks in your similar situation. And what we need to do is make a list of your objectives. And those objectives could be quantitative and qualitative. I'll give you easy example. You have a concentrated stock. Maybe a quantitative reason is you're like, hey, I don't want to pay the taxes uh, because maybe I'm moving to a different state in the future and, and my situation will be different. Qualitative, that thing made me very wealthy. Um, there's a nostalgia aspect and I want that to be part of uh, the memorabilia in my portfolio. Yeah. Both of those things uh, matter and you can craft a uh, financial strategy that can check both boxes.
1: Yeah, we do that quite quite frequently. But and again, a lot of it is going to come down to every particular situation. And I hate saying this because it's cliche, but you know, the the exchange fund's a great example. The ESOP one's a great example. And I can understand when this happens, you know, clients have said, look, this is how I had my wealth, right? You, you gain wealth through concentration, right? And then you sustain it through diversification. I think there's a saying, I think I've heard you say that Trevor. Um, And I can understand the hesitancy to sell, but then, right, you and I look at it and we're like, okay, well, you're, you're already well off. You're already doing really good. Um, and we're not going to say even sell it, but we're going to try to eliminate this concentration risk within your portfolio in tax-efficient ways and other mechanisms. And walking through that, again, with a client, here's option one, here's option two. And what I like about the planning process is what we're doing is we're laying those options, and we're saying, okay, now you can make an informed decision. Now you can finally do that. But when they come to us, and I think this is your point, they're thinking it's buy or sell, And our job is to say, here's your seven options. And only one of them, of those seven, is a buy or sell. The rest are like different ways that we can structure this and still have the the objective, right? Whatever your objective is, there's seven different ways to cut this. And now you can make an informed decision at least to understand those, those options. It's huge.
0: And the nice thing, like when you just described those seven options, you then place them on the table and you get to describe costs, benefits, pros, cons, trade-offs, yeah. right? Because somebody might say, hey, I worked for this company for 20 years and I've seen the stock be at this price and I've seen the stock be at this price. I am just paralyzed. I don't know when I want to push that button. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, have you ever thought about dollar cost averaging out of the position? Like, what does that mean? Why don't we just pick a fixed amount of shares that we sell um, on a, in a systemized fashion on a monthly basis and then we can solve for that? And they're like, oh, okay. Then maybe they present another issue and then you can modify that too. And that's why I tried to talk about in this article, this idea of hybrid options. Yeah. Um, because sometimes there's a lot of times I'm guessing that you present something to a client and their response is, huh, I never
1: mm-hmm. thought about that before.
0: Yeah. I never knew you could do that. Uh, this is okay in the tax code. I can actually do this. Like right. they're, sometimes <laughs> they're, they're surprised by these things, but there is a benefit there when you're working with a team of advisors- that have come across a lot of different situations, uh because that means, you know, a, 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 gosh, you love illustrations, so I have to give you one, right? I was waiting for it this But, whole time. Uh, you know, if you're in construction, there's probably some obscure tools that you have in your tool belt that maybe you don't use a lot, but when you do use them, they're perfect for that particular job. Yep. Now, the first day you started on the, uh, you know, in your construction job, you didn't have all that stuff. You ran into it. Some senior guy, gray-haired guy that works next to you is like, hey, you don't have a and you're like, no, I've never seen that. And then they'd use it and you're like, wow. Uh, and that's kind of the same thing for us is um, we read a lot, we listen a lot, we have a lot of conversations and we're looking for some of those obscure tools that can be used when it's the appropriate job. Yep.
1: Yeah. And as we mature, we get out of the solutions orienta- orientation, thinking there's a, a one fit solve for everything. And we come into the trade-offs, right? It's a Thomas Sowell quote, right? There are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. It's, it's so pertinent to what we're talking about.
0: That guy, is a author or something?
1: Oh, Thomas I, I'm just Thomas joking Stoll? with
0: you. I'm joking with you. He was the founder of McDonald's. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think, right? There, there you go. Yeah, there it is. Uh, one of Drew's favorite authors. Uh, one of David Bonson's. Uh, 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 should I say favorite? I think uh, you've talked about How could it. he not be? There you go. Uh, Seriously. So
1: here comes the tangent. No, anyway. I'll, I'll avoid the tangent. But Fair he's enough. Best ec- economist ever.
0: <laughs> so, uh, a- again, this – one thing uh, you know Drew and I have the opportunity too to mentor other advisors. And one of the things that i all often say is, "Hey, I'm going to show you a way to do this." And you maybe have never seen this before, but I want you to be really careful because sometimes when you see a new tool and you get excited about it, you like want to share it with everybody. And again, some of those obscure tools might only be used two or three times in your career. like the, it really has to match up. To that person's objectives and their situation uh, on many levels, you would look at their liquidity, their tax situation, what they're trying to achieve, and all of that. Uh, so, again, even uh, in, in the industry, uh, we get excited about these things, and we also have to temper ourselves to say, "Okay, I'm only going to use that when it's the the exact right fit for that person."
1: Yeah, that anytime we hear a new um, product or a new technique um, and it's presented. You'll hear advisors, we walk out, and I've, I've done this, and you think, man, that's amazing. I'm going to use this for everyone. And you're like, wait a minute,
0: wait a minute. No, it's Everyone's not. doing Roth conversions everyone, now. Everyone, exactly.
1: Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so uh, then you you, you got to pump the brakes. You realize there's some recency bias. And uh, yeah, and then you realize it's not a one fit for all.
0: Yeah, so retirement isn't a, a now or later question. There's, there's more to it. Uh, this idea of a concentrated position, it isn't a, a keep or sell. There's more to it. Uh, And now I transition into this last section where I talked about asset allocation. I know what happens with asset allocation. Uh, If you're diversified, there is a blemish in your portfolio. Some things zig, why other things zag. And it will be natural for you to say, hey, you know, know, Drew, I don't always come to you with these things. But I just, to me, it would make a lot of sense to go sell this thing that stinks right now. Uh, And right now, it it might be the emerging markets or it might be high-quality bonds. Uh, Yesterday, maybe it was uh, energy companies. But uh, if you look further further in history, every asset class has its day in the sun and its day in the mud. Um, Every sector, industry, uh, and you have to know if you're diversified that you are going to have blemishes in your portfolio. So again, you have to challenge yourself that it's that same thing. It's not a keep it or get it out uh, situation. Sometimes, and we do it a lot here at the Ponsor Group, sometimes it's moving the dial up or down, and some of it can be accommodating to our preferences. But I would say this is one of the sections where you have to subordinate some of your, your feelings and your preferences to what is best for you because the natural desire is going to be to dump what's
1: been ugly today yeah have you seen the P quilt yes the sector quilt. yeah you can't I, be an advisor if you've never seen that you can't yeah. and so when when you look at that, if that when you were bringing this up just now i'm just thinking of that and you think you know there's certain sectors tech right highest sector for this year this year and then this year it's the lowest sector and consumer discretionary was the lowest for, for three years and then it's the highest and energy and so forth And you realize how many sectors there are and you just realize how much the guard changes. And the whole point is, you know, I think you're bringing up here is is that, you know, the minute we have that emotional reaction to consumer discretionary, right? Because it's down for two years and why do you guys own these these silly companies? And then the minute they wanna react on that, consumer discretionary will go up to the third or the fourth and that's just how it goes. And so because we can't predict these things, diversification owns the day. but emotional reactions and seeing those things and then seeing the, the S&P quilt. So this will solve everybody's problems. Just go to the S&P quilt. Um, but it was very helpful.
0: Yeah. And what Drew's describing there is it basically takes uh, every year and pits the different sectors against each other. And you can see who's the top-performing sector and the lowest-performing sector. That Where that's really revealing Um, And it's in our DNA as human beings, we we kind of use heuristics, right? These shortcuts to to kind of come to conclusions. And we also as human beings are wired to look for pattern recognition. So because, as you mentioned, we have a recency bias, we think that becomes a pattern, right? And you see it in markets a little bit. There's research to be shown that things have momentum, like uh, sometimes the things that are the king of the day, They'll stay king of the day a little bit longer because that, that momentum as uh, more buyers beget more buyers and things like that. But where you're f- – uh, Nassim Taleb wrote a book about it, Fooled by Randomness, is that you think you're recognizing a pattern. You think you're making an adjustment in your asset allocation that's in your best interest, and it's not. Yeah. And one thing I mentioned here uh, for our clients, every Wednesday morning, they get an email in their inbox that we call the Weekly Portfolio Holdings Report. Um, and again, back to this decision of, of not everything being binary, this or that, it is rare in that uh, we, we break down kind of the performance, uh, we peel back the curtain on our views on the different positions in our portfolio. Uh, and also we highlight any activity or changes that we're making. What is more common? It's more common in there that we would add to a position that's struggling, or we might trim a position that's doing really well. So uh, ads and trims, uh, in a way that wouldn't be intuitive, right? Uh, By definition, contrarian. Contrarian, yeah. Those would be more common for us to do a wholesale buy of a new position or wholesale sell uh, of a new position. We do a lot of diligence before we're willing to put a position in a portfolio where we hold like 30 positions. Yeah. So it it should prove to somebody when it comes to that allocation, we put a lot of options on the table. Like David Bonson will speak to this a lot. Our list – of positions that we re- reject or positions that we follow are much larger than our actual core dividend portfolio. So if that dividend portfolio is 31 or 32 individual positions, we have 100 positions we're watching. If we're going to add a position to that portfolio, most likely we rejected seven other positions that we vetted out. Yeah. Um, but you don't often see that uh, if, if you're just seeing the activity we execute. But even in that activity... It's very rare that to buy or sell, it's more common that it would be an add or a trim.
1: Yeah. So I, I can sum all this up, the themes here, because I love the the concrete themes when we do these, right? What do we want people to get out of this? A, immediate gratification is something that you have to throw off the table when it comes to this particular part, which is your asset allocation. There is no anything good in life that is immediate or a quick fix, because you're talking about humans having this draw for like quick shortcuts. heuristics. is six, Yeah. Which is really true. And, and that's something that investors and, you know, uh, self-investors, people that have advisors, they need to get away from, right? Um, there's a reason that get-rich-quick schemes are out there because they appeal to human nature. And there's a reason that they're successful, right? Um, not I should
0: that, write the book, Get Rich Slow. We, or maybe it's already a book. I don't know.
1: It, it, <laughs> if it isn't, it should be. But the idea, but why do get-rich-quick get, get scams work? Like, why do people, why are they drawn to them? Because it's a human nature thing. And the second thing is when we think of the, the, uh, uh, we were talking about the being contrarian part. What's so funny is, is that if it's counterintuitive in the investing world as a rule of thumb, it's probably right. Right. If it's going to the opposite of what your emotions are wanting, you're probably on the right track, which is a good rule of thumb. There's obviously, uh, it's obviously a broader principle, But that's exactly why when we have certain positions down a certain percent, um, you'll see more money going into them. Um, And when you have positions that are higher, you're basically saying, thank you for the gangs. We're going to reallocate in other places. That's a very counterintuitive practice and principle for, I think, most investors. The
0: hard part about being an advisor, if you believe what you're telling us right now, which I do, is you come into a week like this where markets are ugly and this really difficult balance is that if a client reached out to you, your ability to listen, to empathize, and to understand where they're at, even if this isn't ruining your day. Because for me, and, and I never want to be insensitive to the way markets behave and how they make people feel. But to me, I'm always telling myself, this is par for the course. Like this, markets have done this historically. They're always going to do this. Down 20%, down 30%, up 20%, up 15%. Uh, This is the roller coaster I signed up for. What I have to teach myself is to not be a product of my current circumstances, to be able to zoom out. Easier said than done, but there's a balance. there as an advisor that you can have that perspective and that confidence and that peace of mind. But you have to be able to articulate to your client uh, and put yourself in their shoes that they might have not meditated on this stuff as much as you have or or thought about it or have the same convictions. So it, it's a fine line because I think it would be arrogant uh, and, and 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 way too much ego to kind of uh, brush somebody off when they're kind of wanting to go through the natural emotions that, that this week, week makes somebody feel.
1: Yeah. when. It- Knowing you as long as I've known you and then working with you here at the Bonson Group, there's one thing that's clear about Trevor is this stuff is in his bones because you marinate on it. I mean, it's a part of our vocation, but Trevor is a voracious reader in this this, uh, industry and these types of topics, definitely heavily uh, illustrated as well, um, as you'll hear from every one of his podcasts. But it's interesting. It's in your bones. And I think you even said uh, when you were having a side conversation, I hope I can bring this up when the COVID thing was going down. There was even times when you were like, man, this is like, I." You, you had all the principles down, but you're like, this is, this is hard to weather, like psychologically, even for a guy that's marinated on it, it's in his bones. Right. And obviously you didn't waver and you still stuck to those principles, but you admitted there was some psychological, like, okay, like I gotta, I gotta reorient and remarinate on these truths and understand this is real. Um, and I had so, to
0: balance my conversations with clients and with David Bonson to yeah. be like, Hey, just like remind me, okay, cool. I'm, I'm equipped to go back out.
1: Yeah. And so I think of that and I think, okay, for a guy like Trevor, right. Who I look up to as a partner at this firm, who's very good at what he does. And this stuff is in his bones, just like it is in David's. Um, but even if, even if the most successful, uh, wiser advisors who have the gray hairs, Trevor doesn't have many, um, but they're coming, but who have gray hairs, who have done this, have those same worries, how much more right than the clients who haven't marinated on it, greater or lesser argument being made here. Um, but it's it's true, they have to have empathy. Um, we have to be objective. it helps to have somebody outside of you tell you what reality is, um, which is a huge part of the advisor um, uh, benefit, but also advisors with advisors helping them out each other out is huge
0: yeah that Ecclesiastes wisdom right two are better than one always and there's more to that scripture but I don't remember 3 corded strand is strong I don't know uh, there's something in there uh, I'll, I'm gonna wrap us up on this last topic before I close this out uh, I very rarely will read something that I wrote but when I wrote this it probably meant a lot to me because I've experienced these type of things um, but I think it is something that somebody should digest meditate on a little bit. And this is what I wrote. I said, our greatest challenge in this practice is when we butt up against one of our own areas of stubbornness, pride, or pain, will the investor with no debt at least consider the benefits of a mortgage when they buy their retirement home? Will the investor with a personal history of stock market disappointment consider if stocks should play a role in their portfolio? Will the tax-sensitive investor be willing to consider the opportunity cost associated with not making an adjustment in their portfolio. The common theme there is, will you consider it? And that's where I would encourage a lot of our listeners uh, and anybody trying to create a financial plan, put options on the table, even if you think they're silly, even if you didn't think that you would choose them, because they need to be weighed against one another. And you need to understand the benefits of something that even if you reject it, but you need to reject that trade-off too. Yeah. Um, and like I said in, in in that little quote there, our stubbornness, our pride, and our past pains are going to be obstacles that we have to overcome.
1: Yeah. Well said. Very well said. You wrote that when? It was in this article. You didn't read the article. No, no, no. You said you quoted from yourself. <laughs> no, you... I was just I was. It's in this
0: article. It was uh the Got the. It. I wish you would read these before we went on the podcast. It,
1: well, the podcast would be a lot
0: better if I did. So yes. you, you're right. <laughs> there you go. Well, just, so on that note, um, hopefully you'll go read the article uh, and enjoy it. Uh, we will ask that you rate the podcast, Five Stars are Preferred. You can always email us uh, if there's a topic you want us to discuss or you have questions about something we did discuss. The email is really easy to remember. It's tom, T-O-M, at thebonsigroup.com. As I always say, if it's a complaint, address it to Drew. If it's a compliment, address it to Trevor. Um, And we will be back next week with more of our thoughts thoughts on money.